0: This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, sitting in for Terry Gross. Next month, Angela Lansbury will receive a special Lifetime Achievement Tony Award. She can add that to the Tonys she's earned already for such roles as the star of MAME, portraying Mama Rose in a revival of Gypsy, and playing the pie maker Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Both those latter musicals had lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, and both were very juicy leading roles. In Gypsy, Mama Rose was the ultimate stage mother. And in Sweeney Todd, Mrs. Lovett was running an unsuccessful bakery in London in the Victorian era when she was inspired to team up with a local barber named Sweeney Todd. He was a serial killer, intent on murdering many of his customers. And in the song A Little Priest, Angela Lansbury, as Mrs. Lovett, suggests a particularly gruesome partnership. He's piling up bodies, and she offers a uniquely advantageous means of disposal.
1: I mean, with the price of meat, what it is, when you get it, if you get it. Huh. Good, you got it. Take, for instance, Mrs. Mooney and a pie shop. Business never better using only pussycats and toast. Pussy's good for maybe six or seven at the most. And I'm sure they can't compare as far as taste. Mrs. Lovett,
2: what a
0: charming notion. Ever. Angela Lansbury grew up in England and came to the US during World War II. Her first role in a movie came at age 17, playing the maid in the 1944 film "Gaslight." She was nominated for an Academy Award for that performance and received another nomination the following year for her role in the picture of Dorian Gray. In the 60s, she was nominated again for her terrific performance as a manipulative mother in The Manchurian Candidate. She also won four Best Actress Emmys for her role as Jessica Fletcher in the long-running CBS mystery series Murder, She Wrote. Not counting next month's Lifetime Achievement Tony Award, she already has five Tonys for both musicals and dramas. Terry Gross spoke to Angela Lansbury in 2000.
3: Angela Lansbury, welcome to Fresh Air, and congratulations on the Kennedy Center honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Let, let's start with your childhood. You,
2: you grew up in London. Your mother was an actress. What kind of work did she do? My mother was an Irish actress, and she appeared in a number of various plays during the time that she was working. She uh, started off uh, doing uh, Shaw, uh George Bernard Shaw and also Shakespeare and uh, became also the leading lady of, of the great uh, English sort of matinee actor who was Sir Gerald de Maurier. So she, she played a variety of roles actually. She was a serious actress. She was not a comedy, uh, musical comedy actress. She was a serious actress.
3: During World War II, when you were young, your brothers were sent to a family in the countryside, as, as many British children were, to get away from the bombing. But you wanted to stay home. And, but your school was moving, so you, you weren't able to go to school. I think you worked out a deal with your mother that uh, you would
2: be tutored at home and then also take singing and dancing lessons. That's absolutely true. And I, I thank goodness mm-hmm. I chose to do that or that she agreed to let me do that. But I think she also was quite happy to have me stay with her as I was the only, I was the sort of remaining uh, sibling who was around and therefore she was quite happy to have me stay at home with her and have classes and start my dramatic training. So you started drama school during the war, staying home in London.
3: What convinced mm-hmm. you then that you you liked acting after being so ambivalent about your mother's career?
2: Well, I realized that what I was going to be doing in the theater really was quite different, although I didn't realize that at the time. But what I experienced at drama school was the fun and the excitement of being given a part. Uh, And when you're a student and you are given a role, uh, something is assigned to you and you're going to do a little scene at the end of the term... That's absolutely the most thrilling thing in the world. So, you're doing it, in other words. And I, my first role was to play uh, Audrey in As You Like It, which is a very comic part. And Touchstone and Audrey have a very funny scene together. And during that scene, I suddenly got the the feel and the smell of being able to make an a make a an effect <laughs> by the way I played the role, the way I comported myself all of the physical aspects of acting suddenly came to me and I got a laugh, you know, the first time I did it. Well, this was a tremendous um, kind of boost to my self-esteem and I I went very fast in drama school and ended up working in one of the senior plays even just in my first year. I was assigned a role of a a lady-in-waiting in in Mary of Scotland. So uh, they obviously knew that this young person had... Something she had a talent, and I, I sort of felt that. Although I didn't get big-headed about it, but I felt it, it gave me tremendous confidence. You came to the United States with your mother, I believe it was during World War II. Yes, we came in 1940, which was uh, a terrible year because it was the on uh, the, during the year was the onset of the really big bombing of Britain. Liverpool was bombed right after we left on our ship, which was a Canadian Pacific liner, which was uh, headed for Canada. My mother had been widowed five years earlier by the death of my father, and uh, we had. No, she also was in the, in the middle of a, a rather un, unproductive and unsuccessful love affair, and she wanted to get away from it. But, she, but mainly, number one, she recognized the fact that Britain was likely to be bombed, and that London really was no place for us to remain if we could possibly get away. Did you and your mother both want to act in the United States? Yes, my mother wanted to pick up eventually her career. And when we first arrived, we we used to do readings together. We'd do Shakespeare. uh, We'd go to the various schools all around uh, Prairie and New York and. Miss What's It's Names, I forget the name, I shouldn't remember, I should remember, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and also some of the great prep schools outside of the city, and for $25, which in those days was quite a lot of money, we would do scenes from uh, Romeo and Juliet, and uh, she would do scenes of Desdemona, and we... Um, She also did epic poems uh, by Alice Dewar Miller and various other writers who were writing epic poems about the war at that time. And uh, she was very, very good at it. She was a great recitalist, as they used to call them in Victorian days, or Edwardian days, I should say. And uh, so I would go along with her in some instances, and many times she went alone. But that was the beginning of her career in the States and mine too. So sometimes you worked as a team. Did you ever feel competitive with your mother? I never felt competitive with her, no. I know that eventually I think uh, it crept in, you you know, that green-eyed monster sort of crept in from my mother's side. But um, She felt competitive uh, toward you? Yes, I think so, because she thought, after all, she was a woman. She was only in her 40s, and she was a most beautiful woman, my mother. And uh, she wanted to have a career. She was a very earnest and terribly hard-working actress who found it... Working and learning roles very very difficult. Acting for her required tremendous concentration and, and devotion to duty, and uh, she loved doing it, but it put a tremendous strain on her. Uh, whereas I seem to do it with one hand tied behind my back. So it was, uh, there was a, an unevenness, shall we say, in our uh, our approach to the jo- to 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 work. And, and you um, and you started getting roles in movies. Well, eventually, of course, when we we moved out to Los Angeles and uh, I got my first big interview and I got the part. So my my, uh, career in movies was jump-started by my being accepted for the role of Nancy in Gaslight.
3: Yeah, let's talk about what led to that audition. You, you thought you were auditioning for... You, you, thought, you, you thought your first role would be in the picture of Dorian Gray. Can, mm-hmm. can you explain how y- you got a lead for that movie, but ended up making Gaslight first?
2: <laughs> yes. Well, I was introduced to the studio, which was MGM, by a young man who was being considered for the role of Dorian Gray. His name was Michael Dine. And uh, he arranged that uh, the casting director would see me, uh, this young English girl who at that time was... Um, I think I was 17 and uh, I I went to the studio with my mother and was interviewed for the part uh, of uh, uh, Sybil Vane in in Dorian Gray Uh, and the the head of casting a man called Billy Grady came into the room while I was sitting there uh, he said sort of Whispered in the ear of Mr. Ballerina, the the man I was seeing, uh, you know, uh, you should uh, you should suggest that this young lady meets uh, George Cukor, who's trying to cast the role of the Maiden Gaslight, and uh, so right then and there I was whipped off to to meet uh, George Cukor, and. Uh, So, in well, well, the rest is, as they say, is history. Why don't we hear a
3: short scene from your screen debut in Gaslight? And in this movie, Charles Boyer plays a husband who's trying to to drive his wife mad. His wife is played by Ingrid Bergman. And this is basically a scheme to institutionalize her so he could take her jewels and her money. You play the maid that he hires. And um, in this scene, you're getting flirtatious with him.
4: Seems to be getting worse, doesn't she, sir?
2: You will please not refer to your mistress as she. Thank you, Nancy.
4: Gonna work on your tunes again tonight, sir. You're always working, aren't you?
2: Yes. What are you doing with your evening out?
4: Oh, I'm going to a music hall. Up in a balloon, boys, up in a balloon.
2: I've never been to an English music hall.
4: Oh, you don't know what you've missed, sir. Up in a balloon, boys, up in a balloon. You
2: like it a lot, sir. Oh, well, we must see about that. And
4: whom are you going to the musical with? gentlemen friends, sir. Oh, now you know, Nancy,
2: don't you? That gentlemen friends are sometimes inclined to take liberties with young ladies.
4: Oh, no, sir. Not with me. I can take care of myself. When I want to.
2: You know, Nancy, it strikes me that you're not at all the kind of girl that your mistress should have for a housemaid.
4: No, sir. She's not the only one in the house, is she? <laughs> Angela Lansbury
3: was it? <laughs> was that your bit of business, singing uh, that vaudeville kind of song up in a balloon?
2: No, nothing was my idea in that movie. That was all prearranged and uh, thought up by uh, by George Cukor, yeah, they- and John Van Druten, who was the uh, screenwriter of that.
3: Were there things that you were very naive and in the dark about in that film that you tried to cover up for so that people wouldn't know how green you were?
2: I can't honestly say, uh, except by my onset demeanor. I think my onset demeanor was a very, very careful, covered, um, rather shy uh, attitude about what I was doing. Um, and when I say that, I don't mean that I was aware of that, but I, I know from my, uh, my own un- uncertainty about my personal... Uh, you see, I've always been a very private person. Uh, when it comes to the work, I'm, I'm on solid ground. Uh, when it comes to the, Angela Lansbury, the, the, the young woman, I was on very uncertain ground. So I had to marry those two rather carefully, and that's why, as I say, I always felt that I had to, uh, shall we say, um, tread, tread rather warily from a personal point of view. Just listen and hear and do what I was told. And and asked to do, I could discuss it. But I, in most instances, I was pretty quick to pick up directorial indications from somebody like George Cukor, uh, because he was extremely clear and funny and and uh, helpful. And what he said, I understood. So you could say I was fortunate in that I could understand what he wanted and then deliver it. This is what I do, and this is what I always maintained throughout my career: was that that I had that ability to take direction and also to understand what the what was required of the character. Do you remember any of the more
3: uh, helpful or interesting
2: directions that Kukor gave you? Well, simply that he felt that she was a naughty, rather dirty girl, and uh, that that was the way he saw her. He felt she was, and when I. Gave him that. He thought it was terribly funny, and he encouraged me to be this this snotty, cocky little person who uh, was able to dominate uh, uh, Charles Boyer with inference. Uh, what I inferred was was a great deal more than what I was saying, and this uh, uh, my. Ability to do that worked, thank goodness, because I understood exactly what Yuko was asking me to do. And, uh, you know, and I said, well, you know, she's not the only one in the house, is she? You know, that, 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 that <laughs> right. came, I mean, totally, I understood that. And that made me roar with laughter.
3: Well, you were still a minor when you were making Gaslight. What
2: kind of special provisions were made for you on the set? Oh, it was required that there was a, a social worker with me Until my 18th birthday, which I I celebrated on the set of Gaslight, actually. And uh, I always remember it because (laughs) uh, Ingrid and Charles and George Kukul were so wonderfully kind. And Ingrid gave me uh, lovely bottles of strategy, which was a lovely, smelly cologne, which I... Never had anything as lovely as that. And uh, uh, the powder, you know, sort of talcum powder and things, a set. I always remember that's Interesting, the things you do remember. <laughs> and uh, uh, we celebrated and I uh, was able to take a cigarette out of a packet in my purse and smoke it, which I hadn't been able to let on that I had been smoking from the time I was really about 14 years old. I say that without any sense of pride at all, and I? Uh, stopped smoking 30 years ago. But nevertheless, as I, I don't know whether you remember, but I do smoke a rather long cigarettello in, in, the, in the movie, and uh, that was part of the, uh, uh, the business in the movie of Gaslight. But uh, they only let me puff it, and I wasn't allowed to inhale, as Mr. Clinton would say. So <laughs> I, I, but in fact, I had been smoking for a couple of years.
3: Um, Gaslight is one of those movies with really nice black and white lighting. Do you remember getting lit for the film
2: and what that process was like? Very well. I do remember very well. Uh, Joseph Ruttenberg was the uh, DP on that, and uh, he was an extraordinarily careful, painstaking uh, person when it came to lighting women. And I think some of the shots of uh, Ingrid Bergman are some of the most beautiful, tremulous, lovely shots I've ever seen in black-and-white photography, except for what he did for Garbo and those. But certainly we all uh, were the beneficiaries of his artistry.
3: You were nominated for an Oscar Best Supporting Actress
2: for that first role. Mm-hmm. You lost to Ethel Barrymore.
3: <laughs> it must have been pretty heady to be nominated your first time out.
2: Oh, I should say so. I was absolutely knocked off my pins. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't believe it. Did, did you feel comfortable at MGM in Hollywood in the
3: 40s um, with all the kind of glamour and publicity surrounding the movies
2: then? Um uh, it was a hard adjustment for me. I wanted to play the game, you know. I wanted to be like the rest of the girls. I was still enough of a, uh, an adolescent in my heart, uh, although I always say that I sort of missed my adolescence. But part of me wanted to be like uh, the, the girls who were under contract. Uh, but I really wasn't. I just didn't fit in that mold. And uh, I know now that uh, it was a difficult period of trying to be what I really wasn't. The only, uh, let's say, the comfort I took was, and even then I kind of leant on it, was the fact that I knew that I was an actress and that I could play different roles because I was continuously being offered extraordinary uh, stretches, shall we say, as an actress, to play parts which were way out of my range. However, I would do it, and I managed to just skin by by the, by the skin of my teeth. Uh, you know, playing roles that where I was much older than I actually was, uh, playing uh, Walter Pigeon's wife in If Winter Comes, you know. I don't know, you even know that movie with. with uh, I haven't seen uh, it. No. Well, it it was one of those films of the 1940s with Deborah Carr. And uh, I I was playing older women. I was playing um, Frank Morgan's wife as the Queen of France in in The Three Musketeers. Uh, I got to dress up and look. Looked kind of staggering and, and terrific with all of this this paraphernalia that was laid on me, but I, I was still way out of my age range. So I was never going to get to play the girl next door, and I was never going to be groomed to be a glamorous movie star. And uh, I, I I sort of realized that, so I had to make my pe- make peace with myself on that score. Well, how did you feel about playing the the older uh, women? I hated it. I mean, I didn't enjoy it and I fought it and I tried hard. I would go to the studio heads and say, look, don't make me play this part. But they would sort of say, well, if you will play that part this week, we'll let you do such and so next week kind of attitude. So I would end up doing it. And um, it, it all added to my, my training, really. It was like training on the job. And uh, I think I, you, you never, nothing is ever goes to waste as an actress. You docket it all away and you remember and you use stuff later. So it, was, it didn't do any harm. And I was being paid, good heavens. You know, I was under contract and uh, I was making 500 a week or 750 a week, which in those days was an enormous amount of money enabled me to help my family and uh, so I was a working actress. It's, it. it's funny because your situation
3: was the opposite of Ju- Judy Garland. For years she tried to get out of playing the juvenile and grow
2: up in a movie. Yes, well there you go. You see, we, we all have different problems uh,
0: uh, as youngsters. Angela Lansbury speaking to Terry Gross in 2000. Next month she's scheduled to receive a special Lifetime Achievement Tony Award. After a break, we'll continue their conversation, and I'll review Keeping Company with Sondheim, a new great performances documentary on PBS that looks at the history and making of the current Broadway revival of Stephen Sondheim's musical, Company. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air.
1: <gasps> a customer! Watch your rush, watch your hurry You gave me such a fright I thought you was a ghost Half a minute, can't you sit, sit, sit down, sit All I meant is that I haven't seen a customer for weeks Did you come in for a pie, suck? Do forgive me if me has a little...
0: This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley, in for Terry Gross, back with more of Terry's 2000 interview with Broadway film and TV actress Angela Lansbury. Her movie credits include Gaslight, The Manchurian Candidate, and Disney's animated version of Beauty and the Beast. On TV, she starred as amateur sleuth Jessica Fletcher in Murder, She Wrote. And on Broadway, she's won five Tony Awards for such performances as her starring roles in the musicals Gypsy, Mame, and Sweeney Todd. Next month, she'll receive yet another Tony, a special Lifetime Achievement Award.
3: Your first marriage was to Richard Cromwell, uh, who... You later found out was actually gay, and that revelation, I think, is what ended the marriage. Um, you must
2: have been shocked when you found out. Um, I wouldn't say yes, I was, but it's a very curious thing. I had known so many gay people um, in Hollywood. Uh, it just had never really sunk in. It was I was in love with love, and and uh, I just. It was a shock, but it wasn't a shock because I was—I was so in love with uh, Richard Cromwell when I married him that um, I was just—you uh, I, I, know—I'd never had any any kind of experience. I wasn't—I uh, I had nothing to draw on. To, uh, no, as I say, I had had no experience sexually, and I didn't, really didn't know. So when it turned out that he was, I. I never blamed him for it in any way, and I realized that I had just made an excruciating error, you know, an emotional error. And uh, but I don't regret it because I I learned so much during my the the short time that we were together, which was probably less than a year. But I give him credit for introducing me to so much that in my life I wouldn't have uh, known about had had it not been for him. So um, it was a good experience. So you say you learned a lot from him. What are some of the things you learned? Well, he had an extraordinary group of friends, wonderful people in, in, the, in the business who I never would have, have met. He was a great friend of Joan Crawford's and, uh, oh, Bill Holden and uh, Zachary Scott and all kinds of actors and, and actresses of that era. And uh, he also had an incredible library of, of music, uh, of old 78 records in those days. This was before the um, the LPs and even the 45s came out. And uh, he had people like Merman on record from the, 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 the year Dot, you know. So I got to listen to uh, all kinds of performers. And his whole life had been listening to these records. And he had an enormous collection. Um, and he, he had a... a Great, great recording um, machine that used to slam down. You could put 12 records on it. And we, I'm sure many of our, our, <laughs> our listeners will remember those. But, um, you know, and uh, we, li- we would listen to music all the time. He also had a tremendous classical repertoire of music uh, in his collection. Did you learn a different style of singing from being exposed to all the singers in, in his collection? Absolutely. Oh, sure. You and uh, I, I picked up a tremendous amount at MGM, working with Kay Thompson and Judy and uh, uh, Andy Williams. All those uh, Andy was a backup singer in those days. So I mean, you—if you, if, um, most performers are like sponges, and we all pick up from one another, and uh, you learn how to do certain things vocally and uh, also interpretively, uh, how to interpret something in a certain way. Uh, you might you might get it from Nina Simone or you might get it from Judy or you might get it from Merman. You never know. Uh, it, but you don't actively and consciously use it, but it's in there. So you it, it suddenly it manifests itself in what you're doing. So this is what I mean about I, my education at that time was so varied and so exciting uh, from the point of view of what I was learning that uh, I've used and called on it ever since. Can you talk about any
3: specific aspect of singing that you learned during that period? Um,
2: Learned about lyrics. Learned about clarity. Learned um, that, in my instance, because I'm an actress, I am going to sing the scene. I'm going to sing the scene. I'm not going to just uh, spout the lyric. I'm going to sing the scene. And that's what I bring to singing, is uh, because I'm not really a singer. I, I have a, a, a serviceable voice. But how I use it, it's the emotion under the note that sells the song, from my point of view. In other words, what I do is I use the emotional uh, kick that I know is inherent in that moment in that scene that i 'm singing, and that 's what sells the song well, I, I feel a song cue coming on. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think maybe this is a good time to talk about uh, about Broadway um, mm-hmm. let me Let me ask you about um, uh, the British production of Gypsy, in which uh, you played um, Gypsy Rose Lee's Mother, the role yes. originated on Broadway by Ethel Merman. Mm-hmm. And you were asked to do this in England by Arthur Lawrence, who, who wrote the book and, and directed the, the British production. <laughs> um, you knew Merman's work. I, I assume you probably saw her on Broadway in Broadway in, in Gypsy. How did you feel about um, taking on a,
2: a role that she had done? I was completely nonplussed. I said no. In 1972, when Barry Brown and Arthur and uh, Fritz Holt, Barry's partner, asked me to do Gypsy in London, I said, you've got to be kidding. I said, I could no more uh, approach that role having treasured the recording of uh, Ethel Merman singing Rose. uh, I know what's required here, and I know what a uh, absolutely tremendous, overpowering role it is, and I—I I don't think I'm up for it. I mean, uh, and then as the year went by, Arthur really got at me, and he said, "Angie," he said, "Rose, I wrote Rose as a great character. It's an enormous acting role. We want you to. We know you can sing it. As far as uh, your own rendition of, of the songs." we want your dramatic input. We want the, the role to be played by an actress, and and we would really encourage you to do this. So I said yes. But it took me a year.
3: Um, well, I should mention that in Craig Zaden's book about Stephen Sondheim, Arthur Lawrence really praises your... Um, interpretation of this role. And he says, with no disrespect to Merman, it's the first time that the number Rose's turn was done the way it should be. It's hair-raising, and it's because Angie's an actress. I know of no one else in the musical theater who can sing as well as she does and be the actress that she is. So, I'd like to play part of Rose's turn. And this is, you know, toward the end of Gypsy. You've been the stage mother, you know, throughout your life. And Gypsy Rose Lee has become, a, your daughter has become a famous stripper. But you're wondering when's it your turn? When's it your turn to, to be on stage and to be before the lights? So, you're on stage in front of an empty theater um, and singing your number. And anything else you want to say about it before we hear it?
2: No, except to say that uh, it's one of the most rewarding pieces of musical theater to perform, there is, and one of the hardest.
3: Well, if this isn't an example of singing the scene, as the way you put it, I don't know what it is. Mm. (laughs) What is? Here's Angela Lansbury.
1: Why did I do it? Why did it get me? Scrapbooks full of me in the background Give them love and what does it get you? What does it get you? One quick look cause each of them leaves you All your life and what does it get you? Thanks a lot now for the garbage They take bows and you're batting zero I had a dream I dreamed it for you too it wasn't for me, Hurley. And if it wasn't for me, then where would you be, Miss Gypsy Rose Lee? Well, someone tell me, when is it my turn? Don't I get a dream for myself? Starting now, it's gonna be my turn. Gangway, world, are off of my runway. Starting now, I got a thousand. This time, boys, I'm taking the bows and everything.
3: Angela Lansbury, doing that number must have been exhausting. I mean, it seems like it would be so emotionally depleting. Forget everything that it does with your throat, but just the emotion of it. What was it like right after that number on, uh, you know, on stage?
2: Um, people ask me that often, and I must say when people would come backstage after the performance, they would be in tears. I would be drinking a glass of water and breathing a big sigh of relief. I never allow the emotion of a scene, if possible, to get to me. Um, this is not true uh, always, but in that case, I was doing it eight performances a week, you have to understand, and I could not allow it to uh, intrude into my own emotion, uh, emotional uh you know, state. So I, I, I could do it. It's, it's a technique. Uh, it is a technique, and that's acting. <laughs> and people don't really always believe this, and, and uh, some people are absolutely drained and washed out, and they sit in their dressing rooms for hours after having done uh, Rose's Dern, I'm sure, and, and say, I, I don't know whether I can leave the theatre. But I was not one of those people. To me, when it's over, it's over, you know.
0: Angela Lansbury, speaking to Terry Gross in 2000. More after a break. This is Fresh Air.
3: You made The Manchurian Candidate in 1962. And in this movie, a terrific movie, you're a manipulative, domineering mother and wife who's trying to promote the political career of your husband. And it turns out you're actually part of a conspiracy to assassinate the political opponent and take over the country. Mm -hmm. And in this scene, you're telling your son, who has been brainwashed that he has to be the assassin.
4: You are to shoot the presidential nominee through the head and Johnny will rise gallantly to his feet and lift Ben Arthur's body in his arms and stand in front of the microphones and begin to speak. The speech is short, but it's the most rousing speech I've ever read. It's been worked on here and in Russia on and off for over eight years. I shall force someone to take the body away from him. Then Johnny will really hit those microphones and those cameras with blood all over him, fighting off anyone who tries to help him, defending America even if it means his own death, rallying a nation of television viewers into hysteria to sweep us up into the White House with powers that will make martial law seem like anarchy. You know, this is very important. I want the nominee to be dead about two minutes after he begins his acceptance speech, depending on his reading time under pressure. You are to hit him right at the point that he finishes the phrase, nor would I ask of any fellow American in defense of his freedom, that which I would not gladly give myself. My life before my liberty. Is
3: that absolutely clear? Wow. And at the end of that scene. Yes. (laughs) And at the end of that scene, before you send your son off to kill the candidate, you kiss him on each cheek, then kiss him fully on the mouth. Oh yes. How'd you feel about that scene?
2: Oh, I thought it was very telling. (laughs) Very telling. And how'd Hmm. you feel about playing such a, a really evil role? They are the best. Uh, any <laughs> actress will tell you that evil roles to play are the best. You can go to town, you know. And uh, in that instance, I think that woman had so many layers and uh, so many personas, in a sense. Uh, she was riveting and so interesting to to play. I relish the, the, having had that opportunity to play that role because... I don't think there are many written like that. I, I consider that she was the leer among, um, you know, movie women.
3: We've talked about your, your long and really wonderful career on stage and screen. I think uh, some of our listeners will know you best from television for your work on uh, Murder, She Wrote, as uh, as. Jessica, Jessica Fletcher, Fletcher, who has mm-hmm. solved uh, God knows
2: how many murders <laughs> over the years that you you did that show. Did you
3: ever count how many murders you solved?
2: Uh, Two hundred and sixty-four. Oh,
3: really. <laughs> What was it like for you after playing so many different roles over the years to settle into one role
2: for several years? Uh, When I first started Murder She Wrote, I thought it would last maybe two, three years, you know, or or maybe a year if we were lucky. Uh, But when it extended, and I realized uh, the deep inroads it had made into family life in America, I couldn't stop. So I was sort of trapped, happily trapped. For twelve years with it, and I'm still playing Jessica from time to time. And in loving it, I, I wouldn't want to let go of that lady. what What did you like about her? She was the sort of woman I like, and therefore I, I enjoyed playing her, and being Jessica was second nature to me because she uh, she embodied all of the the qualities that I like about women. She was uh, valiant and uh, uh, liberal and uh, athletic and uh, exciting and, and and sexy and all kinds of good stuff that women are of a certain age and are not given credit for. So to be able to play that uh, gave me tremendous uh, sort of pleasure, and I, I'm so glad I've done it. You know, the press
3: release for the Kennedy Center Honor describes you as a beloved actress, which I think is pretty
2: accurate, but do you, do you feel beloved? <laughs> <laughs> uh, from, from playing Jessica Fletcher, yes, I do. I do feel a sense of tremendous warmth from the American public who have known and loved that program. I, I really do. I know they, they, I don't know whether they're mixing me out with a character, and it really doesn't matter. The main thing is, I, have to, uh, I feel their gratitude so often for all the nights.
3: Well, I thank you so very much for talking with us, and congratulations again on the Kennedy
2: Center Honor. Thank you. I have really enjoyed talking to you, and as I say, I listen to your program
0: all the time. Angela Lansbury speaking to Terry Gross in 2000. The actress, who is 96 years old, is scheduled to appear at next month's Tony Awards and be presented with a special Lifetime Achievement Award. Coming up, I review Keeping Company with Sondheim, a new PBS Great Performances documentary about the new version of one of Stephen Sondheim's classic Broadway musicals. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm TV critic David Cooley. Tonight on PBS, Great Performances presents the premiere of Keeping Company with Sondheim. It's about how Stephen Sondheim's landmark 1970 musical called Company, based on stories by George Firth, was adapted to the current Broadway version pivoting on a gender switch that rewrites the central role as a woman instead of a man. But it's also about how this new company survived the pandemic New York shutdown, and what this Sondheim musical and Sondheim himself means to the city, and to Broadway, and to musical history. More than 50 years ago, Company burst onto the Broadway scene. It was 1970. And lyricist Stephen Sondheim, after a string of stellar collaborations on such musicals as West Side Story and Gypsy, wrote both the lyrics and music for Company. It demanded attention and deserved it. Company's the first full-blown score I wrote that really, that's me and nobody else. Back then, D.A. Pennebaker made a fabulous documentary about the making of the Company original cast album recording. It's still famous and still captivating for capturing the anguished singing of Dean Jones, who starred in the leading role of the unattached New York bachelor Bobby, and who left the show shortly after it opened. That documentary also is riveting for showing how Elaine Stritch agonized to record her show-stopping solo, The Ladies Who Lunch, and how, with time running out on that recording session, she finally nailed it. For this new Great Performances offering, focusing on the reworked production of Company, documentary director Andrew Douglas isn't interested in the recording of the cast album. He's got other things in mind, and they're all newsworthy and worthwhile. How Bobby with a Y, played by a man in all previous versions, morphs into Bobby with an IE, a 35-year-old single woman played by Katrina Link. How this new company shut down in previews just as the pandemic swept through Broadway. And how it managed to come back more than 18 months later. And how Sondheim himself lived to see it, but only barely. Lots of interviews, some vintage, most of them fresh, put all three of those stories in perspective. Sondheim, in old clips, explains what made company so groundbreaking at the time. Company's about a single moment in a man's life. Literally one, maybe three seconds in which something snaps inside of his head and he reviews his life to that moment. The business of exploding a moment like that. The business of uh, a group of memories forming your uh, story as opposed to a plot, as in follies. Producer Chris Harper wondered, what if the show was about a single moment in a woman's life? and took that idea to Marianne Elliott, who had directed Warhorse, and was intrigued by how conventional company was not.
2: It breaks all the rules. It's not really what a musical should be. No,
1: it doesn't have a narrative. There's no narrative. <laughs> There's no story. Um, it doesn't have a beginning and a middle and an end. It doesn't have an I want number. It doesn't have an ensemble.
0: As a necessary step before gaining Sondheim's approval, she mounted a workshop version featuring a female Bobby and some other changes and filmed it and sent that film to Sondheim. In an interview where she and Sondheim are seated next to each other, he recalls his somewhat surprised reaction.
1: Bobby, 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 Bobby baby, Bobby, honey, boo-boo, boo-boo, Bobby, darling, Bobby, Bobby, we've been trying to call Bobby sugar, Bobby,
0: sweet, you could drive a person crazy, you could drive a person mad.
3: I looked at it and I thought, my goodness, it, it works. Meaning I was able to understand what she was doing. They had a very young cameraman there. And when it was all over, he said, this is, you know, tell me about this show. And somebody told him about it. He said, you mean it worked with a man? <laughs> yes. That's the highest compliment she can get.
0: Once the production is a go, the rest of this documentary just holds on tight and tries to capture everything that happens, however unexpected. We see the revival take shape and Katrina Link take on the same classic being alive number as Dean Jones had half a century before. Someone to hold you too close, someone to hurt you too deep,
1: someone to sit in your chair, to ruin your sleep. That's true. Someone to need you too much. Someone to know you too well. Someone to pull you up short. To put you through hell. See what you look
0: for. Keeping Company with Sondheim interviews drama critics, current cast members, and others, all of whom talk affectionately and perceptively about Company the Musical, its central character, and Sondheim himself. Lin Manuel Miranda tells stories that might bring you close to tears. And so will this program's climax, which features director Elliot stepping on stage to welcome the theater audience back for the long-delayed opening night of this new company. In that audience is Stephen Sopper.
1: It is uh, truly overwhelming to be back here at the Bernard Jacobs Theater after 631 days. (laughs) Uh, We do need to thank certain people, the crew, the cast, the musicians, the most amazing stage management team, uh, the creative team, everybody who's worked on the show, George Firth and his madcap wild imagination. And of course, our most generous collaborator, Wolf Stevenson.
0: The documentary ends with a postscript, noting that Sondheim died in his sleep 11 days later after celebrating his 91st birthday. A birthday celebration is, of course, at the heart of company, too. And to all fans of company, Stephen Sondheim, and musical theater, this great performance's special makes for a perfect gift. On Monday's show for Memorial Day, country music star Tim McGraw He wins Grammys and sells out concerts, and he's an actor. He and his wife, Faith Hill, star in the Paramount Plus TV Western series 1883, playing a married couple making their way in a wagon train up the Oregon Trail. It's a prequel to the series Yellowstone. Hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Schirach. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Tina Callaquet. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. and Cooley.